Before we get started, though, I want to let everyone know something big that has happened in my life. Um, it's an anniversary. Actually, I thought about it just a minute ago. It's two anniversaries. It's a really big thing. So some of you might be like, oh, wow, he's talking about his wedding anniversary. No, 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 no. Far less significant. Um, this is actually, to, like last weekend, was the 10-year anniversary of my high school graduation. It was also the five-year anniversary of my college graduation. So if you do quick math, you're like, wait a minute. Took someone five years. Yes, it did, all right? And God still loves me. So some of you might be thinking, like, all right, Alan just, like, got older in my eyes. Like, he's, like, got double digits between him and, and high school now. That's great. Most of you, though, in this room are probably thinking the exact opposite. Like, oh, my gosh, it's only been 10 years since that fool was in high school. I get it, I get it, but I'm here and I am full of 10 years of, of wisdom. Um, I'm beginning to accrue something that might be harder to accrue than anything else, and that's called ex, uh, experience, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> Just got some judgmental glares this morning. I've got 10 years of the real world under my belt, a.k.a. the School of Hard Knocks, a.k.a. my 20-somethings. A.K.A. I'm close to being able to say back in my day without it being for comedic effect. Maybe this will help you get on my side a little bit more. I have legitimate many memories of the 90s, right? Does that help at all? Okay, good, good. I remember Y2K. Does that, hopefully that should change things a little bit. Uh, but since I have all this wisdom, um, I should try to impart some um, to our group of graduates this morning. And I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. Um, this is truly, if I've learned anything in 10 years, this would be like the most practical thing that I would give as far as wisdom to our graduates of high school or of college um, or of any level. Um, it is to keep learning. It is to always be learning. Um, and I don't just mean like from an academic perspective, like in a classroom. I mean legitimately learn every day. In fact, I would be willing to say if you made the conscious effort to every day learn something new, I think you'd be in good shape. I think that's a good thing that all of us need to think of, but we're not looking for just practical wisdom today. We're looking for um, something more um, important. So here's a freebie. Young people, try broccoli again. You're laughing. Adults, y'all remember when you hated broccoli. And what, what do you think about it now? It's pretty good, right? It's not that bad. Those little trees that were yucky now aren't so bad anymore. You don't have to drown them in like nacho cheese, you know, in order to eat them anymore. You can actually eat steamed broccoli. So try broccoli again. I bet it's gotten a little better. I've learned a lot as a dad. Mainly I'm learning that there's so much I don't know. But one of the craziest things that I'm learning is that I have preferences when it comes to the shows that my children watch. I'm not, all of y'all are like, well, yeah, duh, so do we. I don't just mean like I have preferences for when they watch it or how long they watch it or, or I have a bunch of like negative like preferences, like I know what I don't like. I actually have developed a bit of a taste for what I enjoy in my children's television shows. There are shows that I legitimately enjoy watching. Like, there's so many shows that they'll put on, and I'm like, all right, I hate that. Change it. The song's stuck in my head. I can't stand it. Turn it off. There's some that I just kind of tolerate. Maybe it just keeps them occupied while I just, you know, go somewhere else in my brain for a minute. 
But then there's other shows where it's like, all right, let me put my phone down for a minute. Let me settle in. Maybe let's pop some popcorn and let's watch the show together as a family. You know, parents of young kids, I think you know what I'm talking about. Think about this for a minute. What is your favorite children's television show? Just think on I think I already heard it. It's, I think I already heard the correct answer. Bluey is without a shadow of a doubt the greatest thing that's happened to children's television since Tom and Jerry. It is amazing. And I stand by it. I love this show. I would and have watched this show by myself more than once. I love it. Bluey is about a young dog named Bluey and her family. Bluey is the little blue dog in the front center. That is her sister. Oh, Bluey's a girl. You need to know that moving forward. Bluey and her sister Bingo, which is being held by the larger dog. They have parents. Dad, whose name is Bandit. Mum, because they're Australian. Mum's name is Chili. Kind of weird, but whatever. They make up together the Healer family. Get it? They're blue and red healers, and they live in Australia, all right? It's awesome, all right? You, some of you might be like, all right, Alan, you're not selling me so far. You need to watch this show, not even with children, just with yourself. It is funny. It has and continues to make me cry. It is something I just love watching with my daughter, and it's educational, but not in a way that's like teach you ABC123 type thing. It has taught my daughter, like, how to converse better, like, how to explain how she's feeling about something, how to articulate her emotions on something. Like, I really stand by this show, and I've developed such a taste for it that I can even tell you what the best episode of this show is, hands down, is season two, episode one, Hammer Barn. All right? Hammer Barn is the best. Hammer Barn is essentially like their Home Depot if you will. Like a, it's like a mix between a Home Depot and Ikea in this little world that they live in. And those who know, know about this episode. This episode begins with mom and dad working on their home, which leads to something breaking, as it always does. Uh, mom is sad and points out that their home is getting old. Dad reassures her that their home isn't old, it just has character. Right on time, the children walk up, walk up, both of them holding a slice of watermelon, and they're complaining about whose slice of watermelon is more red than the other one. You keeping up? All right, good. So dad, fed up with his family just complaining about everything, decides to impart some wisdom to them with the age-old saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Well, right on cue, their neighbor, Lucky's dad, who's such a minor character, he doesn't even get a name. He's just Lucky's dad. Parents, a lot of you know what it's like to be referred to as, like, Annie's dad or John Calvin's mom. Like, y'all get that. Lucky's dad yells over, hey, bandit, check out my new pizza oven. But they're Australian, so he's just pizza. My new pizza oven that I got at Hammer Barn. Bandit, having forgot all of his wisdom he just gave to his children about not worrying what someone else has and not comparing or competing, throws it all out the window and says, we're going to Hammer Barn. And off they go. They're on their way to this store. Once they get there, the two little girls are riding in a cart together, and they have put a divider up in the middle to create two houses and two yards for them. All right? They're going through and they're picking out things while Dad is busy looking at pizza ovens. The mom, Chili, is handing the, the girls items that they need for their home. So if she puts one plant in the buggy, what do you think she has to do? She has to put a second one, right? 
So they're filling up this buggy two by two, Noah's Ark style, with one plant for one, then the other one gets it. One thing for one, one thing for the other, until they get to these two garden gnomes, which the little girls affectionately claim are their husbands. Believe it or not, they start comparing who has the better husband, too, out of these garden gnomes, which is, that's where it stops becoming a joke, and it just becomes a little too real, too close to home. And they start comparing husbands. They name their husbands Gerald and Hecuba, all right, as, as they should. They continue to fight about items that each one is given. One's given a succulent, the other one has to have one, until eventually one is giving a pizza stone. And you're not just going to get two pizza stones, right? That'd be silly. So they only get one, and the girls start tug-of-warring on this thing, trying to fight on who gets to put it on their side of the buggy. Eventually, if you can tell where this is going, poor Hecuba falls to his ultimate demise. Hecuba dies. This leads to probably what is a top ten line in all of children's television. Mom says to her girls, this is what happens when you're unhappy with what you've got. Someone's husband eventually gets it. (laughs) And boy, is she right. Just ask King David and Uriah. There we go. Got some laughs. First service doesn't read their Bible enough. They didn't know that joke. (laughs) Jokes aside, though, like what this episode does such a good job of explaining and putting on display is that comparison is not just a struggle for young people. Comparison was not just something that Bluey and Bingo were struggling with in this episode. It was something that mom was struggling with. It was something that dad was struggling with. This was affecting an entire family. This comparison and then competition through that, right? It's all of us. Dad shares wisdom to his kids about how they shouldn't compare everything just to fall headfirst into comparison and and competition itself. Graduates, unfortunately, comparison is not something that you are leaving behind you. In school, comparison and competition between classmates over whose family has more money, who has the nicest clothes, who's prettier, who's more athletic, whose car is the best, or whose accomplishments are are the most impressive, that seems to dominate your minds. I wish I could tell you that you're about to graduate from that struggle, but you're not. Adults, everyone from their 20s to their 80s, 90s, even triple digits, unfortunately, comparison is something that you have not left behind. We have this nasty habit of comparing and then competing over everything that each other has or does. We compare accomplishments. We compare homes. We compare careers. We compare vacations. We even compare our churches. What's sad is that we can go a step farther and more personal and we compare marriages. We compare families. Or even the accomplishments of our children. We are comparative and competitive to the detriment of ourselves and our families. You don't believe me? At this very moment, you could drive out into Floyd County, into all of Georgia, into all of the southern United States, into all of the U.S., really anywhere on the world you could go on a Sunday morning and you're going to find Little League and ball fields full of families competing. Now, Am I saying that you can't keep a proper perspective while you're doing that? Absolutely not. There are families who do such a great job of using that as ministry opportunities. They do such a great job of keeping proper perspective and keeping the right, keeping their head on straight for themselves and for their families. But you know, if you've ever been to one of these, as I have, you know that we have stands and sidelines full of parents 
spewing the most hateful vitriol at volunteers, at referees, at opposing volunteer coaches, or even at opposing children, like opposing youth players. It kind of sounds like almost funny to a degree to picture that, but it is a very real thing that has happened and our, our kids are watching. Our kids are born with a nature that is going to make them lean. <laughs> it's going to make it easier for them to learn how to sin than it's going to learn how to not. Make sense? We're all born with that nature, so comparison and competition comes naturally. But our kids are looking at us as adults, and they're learning a whole lot more about how to be competitive than how to be Christ-like. Youth sports are just one example. You can look all over our culture today, and you can find where we have been overwhelmed with comparison and competition to the point that it drives and affects every single bit of our life. Theodore Roosevelt, one of my favorite presidents, has a very famous quote that he says, Comparison is the what? Thief of joy, right? Fun fact, first biography I ever read on Mr. Teddy Roosevelt. Read it for school, got some AR points, yeah. Biographies were worth a lot, I do remember that, so I think I got like a prize for reading that. Anyways, this quote has been proven to be so true in my life because I've never found true joy, like real, actual joy in comparing myself to others. I've either walked away feeling defeated because I don't match up with someone else, or I feel better about myself at the detriment of how I see someone else, neither of which are true joy. To feel better about yourself because you've seen how much worse someone else is, is not true joy. That is not true joy at all. But if we know this, which so many of us do, then why do we struggle so badly with comparison? And why is contentment maybe the most difficult mental state or emotion for us to find? Why is it so hard to be content even when we know the dangers that there are in being over, overwhelmed by comparison? Most of you in the room know enough from life to realize that you're going to be a work in progress until the day you die. There's no such thing as having it all figured out. We're all at different points in our journeys through life and to compare yourself to someone else who might be on a completely different step of their journey is foolish, but we still do it. But this is what's so important to recognize. You are not alone. You are not the only one who struggles with comparing yourself to others. Maybe your accomplishments, your image, the way you see yourself, wondering so much how other people see you. You are not the only person who feels like everything's a competition and you are always losing. You're not that only person. As we shift to God's Word this morning, let's keep this main idea in mind. Comparison steals joy. Humility achieves greatness. Comparison steals joy. Humility achieves greatness. As we look in Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 48, it says this, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, who is them here? There we go, the disciples. Got some whispers this morning. Who was it? The disciples, there we go. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put them by his side. And he said to them, 
Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now the disciples spent a fair amount of time with Jesus, correct? I'd say so. For the three years of his ministry, they were with him every day. (laughs) They were with him nearly every moment. They traveled with him. They shared meals with him. They witnessed miraculous things. They were a part of miraculous things. They did tremendous ministry together. They were with him through a lot. Think of the people you spend this type of time with in your life. Family, friends, co-workers. After a large amount of time with these people, what starts to happen? Some of you might be thinking, I start maybe wanting to spend less time with them. And that's not where we're going this morning. What is true for our relationships in reality is that we start to become like them, right? The people you're with the most, you start to become like them. You start to maybe adopt their mannerisms. Maybe even your laugh starts to change to be a little bit more similar to them. Your sense of humor changes. The way you see the world changes. This is true. And in fact, we tell our students this all the time. You are a product of the people you spend the most time with. You can look at your life, and if you could like split yourself into fifths somehow, you're going to see in each one of those like a direct representation of someone you spend lots of time with. That's why it is so important to be careful and to guard yourself and those types of relationships that you have. It's so important because you're going to become like those people that you spend this close amount of time with. And Scripture, even in so many, in, in so many instances, gives wisdom to that to being careful to guard yourself and to guard the company you keep. That's not the the point of what we're talking about today, but with this in mind, it would stand to reason that the disciples would become more like Jesus because of how much time they spent with Him, right? Be reasonable. They spend three years every single day with Him. They're going to start to become like Him, right? And they did in so many ways. These were fishermen and day laborers who became devoted ministers of the gospel due largely to how much time they spent with Jesus. To spending time with Him, to sharing meals, to hearing His heart, and so many things that we don't even get to see in Scripture. All this time spent with Jesus did make them so much more like Him in so many ways. It would be illogical to think that you could spend that much time with Jesus and not become like Him, right? Well... Kind of, because although they spent that time with Jesus, that completely changed them forever, they also spent time with each other. So these weren't perfect men, and the people who were with them, because it wasn't often, often it wasn't just Jesus and the twelve, it was often multitudes and, and, and other groups of people that were walking with them. There was only one perfect one, right? There was only one Jesus in this bunch, and then there were at least twelve others who had a long way to go. In fact, we know one of them, Judas, was with them, but not really with them. You know what I mean? So although they became more like Jesus, they also often brought out the worst in each other, right? They they really struggled with some certain things. They struggled bringing out the worst in each other at times. I sometimes imagine them kind of like the Lost Boys in Peter Pan. You know, like every time Peter's like not around, they just like start hitting each other over the head like bam, bam. Like I'm getting a lot of kids shows references in in this morning. Like they just seem to always be quarreling and fighting and arguing um, over even in in Peter Pan. You see them arguing about kind of who's the right hand man to Peter Pan, who's next in line, that sort of thing. And 
It's the very argument they're having right here. Whenever they got a loan, they tended to be more liable to argue, to quarrel, to fight, to make mistakes. We can see throughout Scripture, through the New Testament, through the Gospel accounts of Jesus coming back to his disciples and finding them doing stuff they ain't got no business doing. It happened quite a bit. We know from this example in Luke 9 and so many others in the Gospel accounts that these were a group of men that did not have it all figured out. And as we can see, they often spend more time being comparative and competitive than Christ-like. Which leads us to our first big idea this morning. Comparison breeds competition, not compassion. Comparison breeds, it produces competition, not compassion. Instead of a mindset of cooperation between each other as they walk with Jesus, the disciples had this habit of quarreling and arguing over things. It doesn't sound like the church at all, right? Moving on. Unfortunately, this is still largely our habit. We compare ourselves as individuals, as families. We compare churches until a competitive spirit develops in us that makes us unfit for the very things that God has called us to do. The disciples were fighting amongst themselves for a certain prize. They wanted a title. They weren't disagreeing about what made someone great. They weren't even arguing about anything that actually existed, at least not in their way of thinking. They wanted to know who was the greatest among them. They literally wanted to establish a pecking order within their ranks as to who the best disciple was. Now you might be wondering, why, why would that matter to them? They're with Jesus. Why would that matter? You see, they still operated under this belief as many people, as many early followers of Jesus did, that Jesus, as the Messiah, would be having an earthly reign as an earthly king. They still thought this was coming at some point, that their hard work, that they're sleeping on the ground, that they're not eating very much, that them being chased out of towns, that all this was going to pay off when Jesus got his throne, right? So they wanted to know, hey Jesus, who's going to be sitting at your right hand whenever your kingdom's established? Who's going to be your, your next in line? They wanted to know what the pecking order was. This is a prize that they were fighting for that doesn't even exist. But verse 47 says that Jesus knew their hearts. Thank God that He knows us better than we know ourselves. And because He knew their hearts, He was able to speak directly to their problem. He knew that their problem was that they were focusing on the wrong things. Their eyes were set on the wrong prize. He wasn't impatient with them. He did not ridicule them. In fact, we see that Jesus took a child, likely the child of a believer who was with Him, or a child that was following Jesus on His own accord, and He set Him at His side. Jesus, in a gentle and compassionate way, showed the disciples that it's not about who's greater, it's about who's lesser. That is the thing that we're looking for. You see, the trap or the shortcomings in comparison is when we compare ourselves to each other. When we maximize the shortcomings of others and minimize our own shortcomings, we lift ourselves up and tear others down. There is no value at all in comparing yourself to other imperfect people. However, there is ultimate value in comparing yourself to Jesus. To stack yourself up against Him, your Savior, to see that which must be changed in order to be like Him. To put yourself up against Jesus to see what needs to happen in your own life to become more like your Savior, the model for us. Jesus, the greatest of all, responded with compassion 
to his disciples. And so should we. Which leads us to our next big, big idea. Be humble as he is humble. Be humble as he is humble. This is one of my favorite things about Jesus. This is one of my favorite attributes of God is that God not only, he's not, he's not some disconnected God who's not really invested in what's going on down here. He came to earth. We get that, right? He lived in perfection. We get that. But we often just kind of minimize that by thinking, oh, it would be easy for God to be perfect. Scripture says that he endured every temptation that possibly could be endured, right? God humbled himself and came to earth and took on imperfect flesh and lived through everything that we have lived through. And honestly, for us in the room, He lived through worse than we have lived through. And in humility, He came to serve. Not to have a card to hold over us, but to serve as an example for those who would follow Him. To serve as a model for those who would look to God. He's our perfect example. He's our perfect model. He is the greatest of all time. And he was compassionate and he was humble. In Matthew's account of the very same story, he provides us with this incredible quote from Jesus as to what produces greatness. Matthew 18.4 says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not comparison. It's not competition. And it's not even something that makes a great deal of sense to us. It's humility. If you want to be humble, just compare yourself to Jesus. It will do the trick. Because Jesus modeled perfection, obedience. He performed miraculous feats. And He was truly great. But through it all, He modeled as well a spirit of humility. We have a humble servant Savior. The world defines humility as having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. See, the world, when it speaks to humility, speaks to self, right? A humble person has everything to do with how they see themselves. But God's Word in Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. See, it's not even about how you see yourself. It's about how you see others that makes you truly humble. It's not about where you place yourself on the totem pole. It's about where you place others, right? That is what marks biblical humility. Look at every single role and relationship and you see in Scripture and you will find a biblical mandate for that position to be one of service to others. Look at every relationship. Husbands, wives, children, in our business relationships, elders and deacons within the church, even the way we view our enemies. In every relationship and relational encounter you have on this earth, the biblical mandate is for you to be a person of service to others. What, is, what did Jesus say about how to interact with our, with our enemies, those who would strike you on, on, on the cheek? Give them the other. Those who would take from you, give them more. In every relationship you find, you are going to find the Christ-like way to handle it is to serve and think of others first. This isn't a self-degradation tactic. This is about where you find ultimate joy. Because for the believer, God's desire 
is that we would find joy in being just a small part of other people knowing Jesus. See, when we walk in true biblical humility and count others as being more significant than ourselves, then nothing brings us more joy than seeing others grow in their walk with Jesus or for the very first time begin to walk with Jesus. When we begin to walk in true biblical humility, then it makes things like this spring season we've gone through where we have had a full baptistry that much more enjoyable. It doesn't just tickle your heart a little bit and think, man, that's nice. But when we are a group of people who are truly humble as Christ was humble, when we truly see that other people matter more than I do, other people seeing Jesus through me, that's the best thing that they could possibly see. So that when we see people give life to Jesus and proclaim who He is, nothing should give us more joy and nothing should fire you up more. It should be the ultimate source of happiness and joy in your life for people to come to know Jesus. That only, only, only can be true with the Holy Spirit and with the model that we have in Jesus Christ. Because left to my own devices, I am too competitive to be humble. I compare myself far too much to be humble. I care way too much about what you've got that I don't have to be humble. Something has to change me. Thank God it's Jesus. Thank God Jesus came in humility so that I could be more humble. That He came to sacrifice Himself so that I could live self-sacrificially. That He came to put others first so I could learn, even on my worst days, that it's important to put others first. Jesus gave us several examples of humility to follow. In Mark's gospel, we see another example of the disciples being concerned with who was the best out of them. This isn't just Mark's account of the same story. This was, in fact, another time that the disciples had the same argument, which is kind of getting redundant at this point. But again, Jesus gracefully teaches His disciples what type of greatness the Son of God is looking for. In Mark 10, starting in verse 42, it says, And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Worldly leaders strive for greatness, which isn't wrong in itself. It's not wrong for you to have a desire to make something of yourself and, 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 to, and to achieve greatness. But what, what is wrong is what the world defines as greatness and what the world does with it once it's achieved it. See, the world finds greatness at the detriment of others, tearing others down in order to build yourself up, making others suffer so that you might be successful. That's how we achieve greatness by the world's standards. To get mine at any cost, that sort of attitude. And then once we've achieved that greatness, we become authoritarians. We act as people who have power over others because of what we have accomplished. That's not what Christ says is for the life of a believer. Followers of Jesus achieve greatness not at the detriment of others, but as a result of the uplifting and elevation of others. And followers of Jesus, no matter how great, recognize that true authority belongs only to the King of Kings. 
True authority is not something I'm striving for when I'm striving for greatness. I'm striving to be more like Jesus so that He alone gets the glory from my life because I know He's the only one with authority. I want to be the best servant of Jesus I can be because He's the one with the power. He's the one in control. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords and the Lamb of God. He's a sacrificial King and Savior. But Jesus was not just talking the talk to His disciples. In John 13, starting in verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. Just pause for a second. This is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that we have. But it starts with Jesus knowing full well who He was, the power He had, and what He was capable of. Of. It says he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus, after that first sentence, could have done whatever he wanted to. But Jesus, after that first sentence, decided to humble himself enough to wash the feet that had been in the sandals of these imperfect men who had been walking with him, not on paved roads, but in, in, in deserts and arid climates. And they were filthy, disgusting feet. And he humbled himself to remove his outer garments, to get on his feet, and to wash If you think for a minute through what we've talked about, that I don't, I don't know if Alan's right because I don't, you know, the world's telling me a lot today and maybe, maybe a lot of churches are telling me a lot today that I'm special be, because of God. And God wants, God wants to bless me and do amazing things in my life and give me a lot of stuff. And, you know, I, this doesn't just jive with this idea of being a humble servant. King of Kings with full authority from God took off his outer garments got on his knees and washed the feet and told you himself that it was all to be an example for you to wash others' feet. Jesus will never ask his followers to do something that he's not willing to do himself. Never. If Jesus, the greatest who ever was or will be, did not concern himself with comparison, then neither should we. If Jesus served, then so should we. If Jesus humbled himself, so should we. If Jesus' entire life was poured out as a living sacrifice for those who hated Him, so should ours. No pecking order or ladder of success will get you a single inch closer to greatness, which is eternity with Jesus. So the response is this this morning. Don't compare. Conform. Conform to the image of the Son of God, the greatest life and the greatest sacrifice there ever was.